0: Capital Retirement Strategies and Cambridge Investment Research are not affiliated.
1: All right, welcome to... Life now, episode number seventy six. I am Steve Killiany, and uh, I've got Dave Murray here with me. Hi there. How are you doing, Dave?
0: Good, good. Just hanging out. Yeah, <laughs> no, no difference. <laughs> I'm here in COVID, COVID pod, as we see the light at the end of the tunnel.
1: Yeah, I talked to this client the other day, and I said, "Oh, can you do a meeting next Wednesday?" and him and his wife both retired, so he said, yeah, you know, I could do a meeting, whatever bled wes day you want to do. And I was like, what does that mean? He's like, well, they all just kind of blend together, you know. It's <laughs> Wednesday, Thursday, blurs day Friday. So, yeah, it kind of feels like that, but like you said, hopefully we do see a light at the end of the tunnel. And hopefully we'll be actually meeting people and seeing people eventually. Eventually, maybe later this year, I don't know.
0: I'm very positive about it. I mean, yeah. that's just the way I feel. I feel like they're going to crank these vaccines out. It certainly looks like we're recording this on February 25th, but it looks like March is going to be exponentially more vaccines for people who want them. And many of these people say, and by the time we – roll around to mid-April, if you want a vaccine, you're going to get a vaccine, and quite frankly, you know, by that time, you're you're meeting people. If you and I are in a room, by then, you have a vaccine, and your second dose or whatever, and I have, Um, and the numbers are really low. Why wouldn't we just get together again and run things as we used to?
1: Yeah. Now, we've kind of talked about it. You know, I'll be interested. I'll be curious to see what percentage of people, you know, basically have gotten used to the virtual meetings now. And, you know, we have some clients where, you know, we meet them in Tyson's and they're driving up from Southern Maryland or Stafford or something like that. I'll be curious to see some of those people who just say, you know what? Virtual meeting is, is fine. You know, we've, we've been doing them for years with clients all across the country. Um, so I'd imagine there'll be some people who just don't want to commute to uh, one of our offices, and virtual meetings will become the future. But Yeah, I,
0: you know, it's so – because we – what's interesting is with our clients who we've had, they've been our clients for years and years, there is definitely something for them and us. And you and I, it's so nice to see them. We work, you know, we've already put together a plan. We're following the plan. We're tweaking. We're doing our job. But a lot of it is catching up and seeing people who, you know, we like. <laughs> you know, it's been years. Right. So I, I foresee a lot of that if the, if our clients, if they want to, they don't have to. But if they want to, then, you know, we will we'll see them again in person. I've noticed what's odd is for the people we've met that are potential new clients and have become new clients, I think the virtual, which I would think would be the opposite. They want to see you in person and get to know you. I find doing the virtual has been good because we are all focusing on the work, you know, yeah. focusing on something new, focusing on information, and just looking at the computer screen and not having distractions has made that focus, I think, clearer.
1: Yeah, no, I think there's something to be said for that as opposed to, you know, reaching on, across the table and saying, hey, I'm looking at this page, look at this page, just having it on the computer in front of you is is helpful at times. Um, okay, so that's not what we wanted to talk about today. Dave, uh, you had one thing that you brought up, and then I thought I had one exchange of some uh, emails with a client that I thought would make a good topic. So let's tackle your first, your thing first, which was a CNBC article looking at the average amount that Americans have in their 401k balances. Um, And I didn't need to click on the article and read it to know that it was going to be some pretty low numbers. Uh, I don't know if that was your thought. Well, it's my thought
0: because you and I both do the same thing. We read these things and know this information inside and out, and look at it all the time. But for a lot of people, It's new information. Maybe I'll set this one up. I always, you're always the setup guy on these podcasts. I'm going to do the setup today. (laughs) A rare changing of of the setup. But sit back and relax. Right. See, you get to do what I normally do, which is let you carry the load. But (laughs) anyway, so, so when you look at these numbers, you, they don't matter when you're young. Yeah. Age 20 to 29, the average 401k balance is 15,000. That's not even surprising. And I think for a lot of kids, if that's your average balance, especially early 20s, that's pretty good. You've had a job. you put some money away.
1: Right. You've at least least gotten started. Retirement is something you're thinking about a little bit.
0: Average 30 to 39 is $50,800. Well, you know what? With with everything else going on in your life when you're 30 to 39, mostly uh, married or many married and children and stuff like that, Again, and you have years to go, and let's say you continue to contribute, not that bad, not the end of the world, you know? Do you need a lot more? Of course you do, but okay. I think the numbers are interesting as you get older, these average numbers. 40 to 49, 120,800. Well, you know what? At 120,800, that's good. You're over 100,000 in your 401K, but you've got a long ways to go, and you need to start even 20 years out. Yeah, Get going on that with what things are going to cost. I find the numbers to be, then to me, they become disturbing with an asterisk after that. Yeah, I'll tell you what the asterisk is. So age 50 to 59, the average 401k balance is 203600 which is good that you have money saved for retirement, but not nearly enough to live on for 20 or 30 years in retirement. Age six, but still more time to grow it as people are working longer and longer. I found age 60 to 69 to be the number one disturbing number. Yep. The average 401k balance between ages 60 to 69 in the United States of America is $229,100.
1: Yeah, and I mean, with with every other age group that you've mentioned, and the, as you've pointed out, Yeah, okay, you don't quite have as much as you need, but you still have that benefit of time. When you get into that 60 to 69, you know, there is no benefit of time. I mean, you're coming up on retirement, you know, voluntary or not. Uh, So that's, to me, why that, that number is so disturbing. Right. With the asterisk, my asterisk
0: is, for the most part, these are more people who might be listening to this podcast, and they're from the D.C. area. And they might happen to have a good pension. Let's say you're a federal employee and you can combine your, uh, pension with your social security and you could say a lot of my living expenses based on what I spend are covered by the combination of my pension. Let's say my spouse's pension and both our social securities or whatever your situation is. That guaranteed income is equal to, you know, or more than what I'm spending every month. Now that two hundred twenty-nine thousand saved for retirement is kind of like gravy. It doesn't yeah. need to be used to support me every. And while I maybe I'd like to have more, that's enough because that's there for other expenses, emergencies, whatever. And well, I still yeah. have a, a long lifetime to grow it. That would yeah. be the caveat. That would be the asterisk.
1: If if it's just being used to supplement your retirement income um uh, but if it's being used to fund your retirement you don't have a pension you know that's really trouble and you know i should say that whenever i read these numbers and these national averages i kind of mentally in, you know in my head think well okay we live in the dc area obviously it's a more expensive more affluent area to live um so if they say you know average across the country is 229,000 maybe to get an average in the DC area you might need to double or maybe even you know something like that you know 500,000 instead of 230,000 that's probably i don't know what do you think dave is that probably a more average number in this area
0: i would i would think that's a more average number but really the discussion is about there's a number and for the purpose of this discussion i'm 65 years old or 67, whatever. I'm about to collect Social Security. I'm used to living on $100,000 a year. You know, I'm used to spending $8,000 a month. Let's change that. I'm used to spending $8,000 a month. Now I'm collecting Social Security, and that's paying me how much a month? So Sorry, three,
1: let's say $3,000. we will be generous.
0: Okay, that's paying me $3,000. i am used to spending 8000 and I have 230000 in my 401k. You and I know, and many of our listeners and clients know that that I could take about four percent off my two hundred twenty nine thousand a year, and that's going to last, you know, twenty five years, maybe. Yeah. Four percent of two hundred twenty nine thousand is approximately, you know, eight nine thousand dollars a year. Yep. So that nine thousand added to my social security, nine thousand a year, which isn't even a thousand a month, added to my three thousand, isn't quite there with my eight thousand expenses. As a matter of fact, it's not even close. And that's why to uh to people who run capital retirement strategies,
1: that number in general is the same. So, and let me just add on the other statistic this article had in here. And I get this question a lot from from younger people, not that we, you know, work with a ton of younger people, but a lot of times it's clients who say, hey, my kid just started, He's he or she's working a job, they're trying to save into their 401k, how much should they be saving? And they've got in this article here statistics, and it's basically the younger age ranges save about 7% all the way up to maybe 12% of their salary. Um I often tell people when they say, well, how much should I be saving? You know, if you're saving 15% of your pay and you're on the younger side, I think, I think you're in phenomenal shape. Um, now that's, that's sort of an arbitrary number, just, you know, when I've kind of done some calculations. Um, but if you can do 15% and you can have that kind of as a goal to strive towards, you know what? If you wind up doing twelve percent, you're probably still gonna be in good shape. But if if you could do fifteen, you know, and you can do that consistently from when you start working all through your career, I think you're gonna be in pretty good shape for the long term. Right. And you know, many of people who by the time they get to us,
0: they've been doing that, you know, their entire working life and they yeah. are in very, very these clients are in very, very good shape. By the time they come to us, and our job, instead of making having them have the ability to survive retirement, it becomes more about enhancing their net worth and working on tax strategies with their investments and all that stuff right. to enhance versus survival. So we have survival clients and we have enhanced clients, and I would say what you just said there is the is the character makeup of an enhanced client. Yep.
1: All right, Dave, let's shift gears to what I wanted to discuss. And I'm going to title this, when I when I title the podcast, I'm going to title this as the growth versus value debate. Um, but I think that the discussion kind of goes even beyond this. Um, but what I, what I mean by this when I say a growth versus value debate, when you talk about investing and investing in stocks, there are what you call style characteristics to different types of stocks. And the real easy examples are growth stocks. And nowadays, most people think of these big technology names like Facebook and Amazon and Google and things like that, that are growing by leaps and bounds every year. depending on the company, they might be growing by 30 or 40% every year. In fact, I just saw something today uh that Twitter said that they want to double their revenue in the next two years. Yeah, I saw that, that. That is big growth. Contrast that with more value-oriented stocks. And you can define value a bunch of different ways, but a lot of people think of value-oriented stocks more as your typical dividend-paying stocks. So maybe this is a utility company. Uh, maybe it's a bank or maybe it's a real estate trust or something like that. And if you think about a, a utility company or a consumer goods company, you know, my classic example, I always use Procter & Gamble. And I say Procter & Gamble, they make soap, they make diapers, they make, you know, hand cleaners, they make all that kind of stuff. The chances of them doubling revenue, like Twitter, in the next two years, I, I just think it's pretty unlikely the Procter, Procter and Gamble sells twice as many diapers two years from now than they're selling now. It's possible, right. unlikely though.
0: But there's so, no, the volatility is different also.
1: The, the volatility is different. Because there's
0: not, you know, if we, if we kick, we're not going to, they're not going to kick Donald Trump off of consumer products. <laughs> like diapers or baby powder. Right. Whereas and, and, Twitter, and even if they did, it wouldn't affect anything.
1: Yeah. So, okay, so those are two very broad uh, investment styles. And what you've seen over the past 10 years or so, yeah, you know, with a few exceptions in there, is that growth has dominated over value. So, growth-oriented stocks like the technology stocks that I'm mentioning there, have really done much, much better than value-oriented stocks. Now, when we go back and we take a look at stock market history going back more than 10 years, we go back 80 or 90 years, we see that over the long term, the value-oriented stocks have performed a little bit better. When it comes down to actually investing, we like to hold a balance of these types of stocks. You know, we like to hold some growth, some value. You know, we might overweight or underweight within there, but we're not saying, you know what, forget about all value. We're just going all growth or vice versa. Forget about all growth. We're going all value. But what's happened the past couple of years is growth has dominated so much. And let me just give you some numbers to show you what I mean. Uh, In 2020, large-cap U.S. growth stocks were up 38.5%. Large-cap U.S. value stocks, Dave, they were up 2.8%.
0: That is a huge chasm.
1: That's a huge chasm there. That's, That's one of the biggest, you know, differentials there that you've seen in a long time. And even when you expand that out, you know, over the past decade, I think it's something like, I don't have the number in front of me, but I think it's something like a three or 4% advantage for growth over value. So, of course, a year like last year leads a lot of people to say, why the heck am I owning these value-oriented stocks? Why don't I put everything in growth? And this is invariably, you know, something when we're going over performance with clients and we're looking at the components of their portfolio, And we're pointing out, and we're saying, okay, see this fund here? It was up, you know, 38%, whatever it was up. This is your growth-oriented fund. It's got all those big growth names we talked about. And then we look at a more balanced or even value-oriented fund. We say, okay, this one's not up nearly as much. The natural question, and sometimes it's a half joke, but I can tell that there's a little bit of truth behind the joke, is that people say, well, why don't we just put everything into the one that was up 38%? And, you know, if we step back and we look at this objectively, we say, well, I probably don't expect it to be up 38% every single year. You no, know, we know long-term averages in the stock market, and they're nowhere near 38% every year. Because, frankly, if that happened, all of a sudden, those investments would be worth tremendous amounts of money and it's just it's not possible there so this discussion or this question that this client had was should we have more money in these growth oriented stocks versus value oriented stocks and I'm going to even take this a step further and say small cap value oriented stocks so this is of course another, thing where you can look at, well, how did growth do versus value? You can look at how did large cap do versus small cap. And once again, large cap growth dominated everything else. So I had a long detailed email back and forth with this guy, but I pointed out one particular statistic that I thought was worth sharing that was interesting here. So if you're familiar with investing in stocks, you've heard of the term the P-E ratio before. And P.E. ratio stands for the price to earnings ratio. So very simply, if the stock you're looking at has earnings of $1 a share and it's trading at a 20 P.E. ratio, that stock is going to trade at around $20 a share. Okay, and obviously the company, they could increase their earnings and if they increase their earnings to $2 a share. Well, the share price could go up to $40, and you would still have a P.E. ratio of 20 uh, a twenty P.E. Now, not to get way too into the weeds here, but let's imagine that earnings didn't change at all, but the price of that stock went up. So earnings stayed pretty much flat, but now the price of the stock has gone up to $30 or $40. That's what we call multiple expansion. Basically, people are willing to pay a higher price for the same amount of earnings. And that's what we've seen a lot of in large cap growth. And if you look right now at where large cap growth is trading, it's trading at about 170% of the average PE ratio that we normally see. Now, if you listen to that. You might think, Steve, Dave, should we sell all of our large-cap growth? You know, just a couple of minutes ago, you had me convinced that we should put all of our money in large-cap growth. Now you've convinced me that I should sell all of my large-cap growth because it's at 170%. It's basically saying it's it's overvalued there. And I'm going to go back to my point of no. <laughs> we like to hold a balanced mix of these things because we don't know Will this continue for a year or two years or three years? Because it certainly happened in the past. You know, or will we see a correction and it goes back down and we see a big decline in large cap growth?
0: Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, that was, But the end of the day, it still boils down to a couple of basic Warren Buffett-like investing principles, if you're trying to figure this thing out. One is, uh, this is the basic for everybody: buy low and sell high. Why would you, why would you buy high by overweighting in growth, knowing this information? It's one thing to keep balance. It's one thing what you just said, but to overweight, get rid of the value, right. stick it in growth. What? So I'm buying high. Aren't I breaking the basic rule? And the other scenario is this: small cap value. Companies that are smaller that have our value, in other words, they're (laughs) well-run, they're going to be good over the long haul. They make sense, especially in a batch like a mutual fund. Um, What do I project for these that are undervalued as far as their stock price? How does that project out for the next 10 to 15 years? Am I sort of – when I'm in them, aren't I buying low right now? So when you you look at the long term. that's all we do with our clients is looking at the long haul of this. You don't want to be in a position where you could could look backward in hindsight and say, oh, in hindsight, I never should have just gone all in on growth because I should have just realized, blah, blah, blah. Well, hindsight doesn't work when this is your job.
1: Yeah.
0: We're not in the hindsight business or else we're in the not in business business, you and me. So that's where... Almost this boils down to why I think good financial advisors are, are important for people because you need to be able to guide the long why this diverse, diversification sounds great when you're at a cocktail party. Yep. I did a diversified portfolio, and that's the way to be because when one thing is up, another thing's down, and vice versa, in the long run, you grow it better. It's a no brainer. Yeah, it's a no brainer if your brain was a computer, not an emotional mess. Yeah. When it comes no, to money, I mean, most people's brains, even when it's your own money, remember, it's easier for us. We're dealing with other people's money. Easier to be less emotional. When you, when it's your own money, you're emotional. And when it's retirement planning and you're not working anymore, rightfully so, you're more emotional. But, boy, this is an emotional issue.
1: Well, um, and, I, you know, I'll tell you what makes this so hard is you can be your, your investment thesis and your investment approach can be 100% correct for the long term, but it can be dead wrong in the short term. You know what I mean? So you can – I know what you mean.
0: Every day we deal with the client, virtually every day we talk to one of our clients, whether they're a new prospective client or one we've had for a long time, they will naturally – this isn't their job. And I mean, no problem. They'll talk to us. In, with, with the mindset of what's happened in the last year. Yep. And that's fine. And that's okay. You know? That's that's like me when I've gone to a doctor. I talk to the doctor. Now, I apologize 9,000 times when I go to every doctor. Because <laughs> well, you know, I do what I don't want done to me in finance. Yeah. I looked on the Internet. <laughs> I know it's just the Internet. Here's what I feel. Here's what I think. You tell me, am I right, wrong, off, whatever? Yeah. Um, so I think it's okay. It's always okay to have your opinion, and in our job, it's important and it's critically important that clients just talk to us and say what they feel, not just what we want to hear. Right? Um, but yeah, don't you? Would you agree with me that most of our clients and most people in general look at the last over the last six months to a year, and that's
1: their? Oh, of course, I mean that, that's the <laughs>
0: landscape. <laughs>
1: you and I have to resist doing that personally, you know, because that's that's what the financial media throws in front of you. That's what investment firms want to throw in front of you. And 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 it's
0: human nature. It's human nature.
1: Yeah. So, but, I mean, that's, you know, it is hard to look at things and say, gosh, I was wrong for this last 12 months without the knowledge of knowing, you know what, if we project out for the next five or 10 years, I'm going to wind up being right. But right now, it feels like I'm wrong and I, I should do something. You know, it, it's, it always feels better to do something than to not do something. So we as human beings, we have this bias towards action. And, right. you know, now, sometimes said that action,
0: that we've, over the course of our firm and our career, we have done things. We have changed course,
1: wow, you and I. We yeah. have made
0: decisions, but not based, not those kinds of decisions been more micro decisions, not macro things like what we're discussing no I mean you could
1: you could certainly take you know the approach and you know frankly we have been a little overweighted towards val or towards growth over the past couple of years, and that's that's worked out nicely um because that you know that appeared to be where most of the innovation was coming from um but to take that to an extreme and say, I'm betting the farm on it, I'm not going to go there, you shouldn't go there, um, you know, a much more balanced, measured approach makes sense.
0: Well, you know what's going to happen? This is a prediction, and this prediction no. will come true because, I, well, at least I think it will come true for me. I plan on still living longer, even though I'm much older than you. Okay. At some point, we will have a discussion with a client or a prospective client, and they'll say, why in the world are we in growth? Can't we put more in value?
1: Yep. Well, believe me, I, I mean, this is when I started. I don't know the, when that's
0: coming, but it's coming.
1: You know, I started in the business in the year 2002, um, and obviously that was very early on in my career there, but I remember having discussions with people and saying, Why would I ever invest in technology stocks and growth stocks? Those just got crushed. Because remember, we came off the 90s. Growth and technology was all the rage. And then for three years in a row, growth and technology got crushed. And I remember having a discussion with a guy. He said, I'm never touching technology stocks again. They're terrible. You know,
0: so let's put this in perspective. Do you know how long it took the Nasdaq to get back to its equal its high of like the year 2000 or 1999? Do you know how many years I years it, it took I think it was 13 years, right? I believe it was or am I wrong? Or 14 years. Okay, no, you're right.
1: It Something like that.
0: 2 months. Yeah, the March COVID crash.
1: Yeah. It was like
0: 4 weeks. It wasn't like Brexit one evening it was 14 years yeah look where the NASDAQ is now
1: yep alright I think that's all we've got for today uh, thanks so much for listening and we'll check in again with you next month